But before we rag too hard on the Antichrist, we might pause for a moment and remind ourselves that we too can be a self-willed people. When Adam sinned, the Bible teaches the whole world sinned in and with Adam because it affirms the solidarity of the race. So you can't say, well, it's Adam's fault. No, you sinned in and with Adam. Paul said, therefore, just as through one man, referring to Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sin. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're nearing the end of our study of the book of Daniel. Yesterday, we completed a look at the 11th chapter. In this prophetic section of scripture, we've seen the last of four visions Daniel had. In this vision, we see a glimpse of the coming Antichrist. As we rejoin Pastor Brogy, he picks up with a recap of yesterday's message and a look at the rest of the chapter. Take your Bibles with you this morning, Daniel chapter 11. We're working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through the prophet Daniel. Today we come to Daniel 11 verses 36 to 45. This particular passage of scripture is studied by prophecy students everywhere. It's a description of the coming Antichrist. Now the Bible teaches that the next great event in God's calendar is the rapture, the catching up of the church. It could happen tonight. Maybe it will happen during this church service. Maybe while you're at work tomorrow. Maybe while you're driving your car. Maybe while you're riding in an airplane. Someday, all of the true Christians will be caught up. Rapturo in the Latin translation. People say the word rapture is not in the Bible. It's not in the English Bible. It's in the Latin Bible. We'll be caught up. Harpazo. To meet the Lord in the air. It's known as the rapture, and those who are left behind will be left behind for the worst time that human history has ever known. And Daniel 11 is describing that time. Now, let me bring you into the context, first the broad context and the immediate context. If you remember from this chart, the book of Daniel divides into two halves. In chapters 1 through 6, we have Daniel and his personal friends. The first six chapters are largely historical with a few prophetical passages brought in. They're told through the third person. The second half of the book deals with Daniel and his people's future, dealing with the future of Israel. Almost the entire section is prophetical with a little bit of history brought in, and it's told from the first person. And so if you remember the dreams and visions in chapters 7 through 12, and there are four, one in seven, one in eight, one in nine, and then one in 11, the longest vision and the entire book. Chapter 10, if you remember, serves as an introduction to the vision in 11. And chapter 12, which we will study in our next time together, is the conclusion of the vision. So four visions, the prologue in 10, the vision itself in 11, and then the conclusion or the postscript to really the entire book. Now, if you remember, narrowing our focus a little bit, Chapter 11 divides into two uneven halves. Verses 1 through 35 deal with the 70 weeks of Daniel's prophecy. If you remember Daniel 9.24, one of the most amazing prophecies in all of the Bible, we were told of 70 weeks. We saw that in the Jewish Bible and the Hebrew Scriptures, there's not only a week of days like we have, but a week of years. 
and the context is always clear as to what is in view. And we showed you three reasons why this was not a week of days, but a week of years. He's not speaking of 77s in terms of days, but 77s in terms of years, 490 years. And he breaks down the prophecy. The first 69 weeks deal with 483 years. And so all of the events in chapter 11, verses 1 to 35, take place in the first 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy. There's a decree that is written by a king. We can identify from the scripture the exact date, not only from biblical history, but secular history. And if you take 490 weeks of days, it brings you to April 6, 32 AD, what we call Palm Sunday, when Jesus officially said to the Jewish people, this was your day, the very day that the prophets had written of. Some were alert to it, like Simon there in the temple. He knew the Messiah was coming. Anna knew the Messiah was coming. The wise men, no doubt, knew the Messiah was coming because mathematically God had said that he will come, he will present himself to Israel by 32 AD. After that time, he would be cut off, he'd be crucified. After that time, the Bible also says that Jerusalem, both the temple and the city would be destroyed, and it took place exactly like God said. But because of the unbelief of the Jewish people, because they refused to acknowledge as a nation that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, there's a time out in the 70 weeks. And so there's a gap of time between the 69th and the 70th week that is now extended for a few thousand years. But there's coming a day after the rapture of the church when the timeout will be over and there'll be a time in and the 70th week of Daniel will begin. It will begin with the rapture of the church. Once the church is raptured, a short time there later, weeks, days, months, we're not exactly sure because the Bible doesn't tell us, but it's short, it's quick. The 70th week will begin with a covenant that this one world leader will make known as the Antichrist. So here in verses 36 to 38, we're going to look at the blasphemies of the Antichrist. And then in verses 39 to 45, this ruler who will be here during the 70th week, will look at the battles of the Antichrist. So let's get started with the blasphemies of the Antichrist. Now, if you remember, there is a gap of time between verses 35 and 36. And that's not unusual. We've already seen that illustrated several times through the prophet Daniel, and even in the New Testament and other passages. We looked at a passage in the prophet Zechariah. We looked at a passage in Luke 4. We looked at a passage in Isaiah 9 that most of us will read at this time of year. A child is going to be born unto us, and the governments will rest upon his shoulders. The second half of that prophecy is yet to be fulfilled. A child has been born the Lord Jesus, the governments have not yet rested on his shoulders. And so very often there's a gap of time, a prophetic gap that God has. And so when you come between 35 and 36, that gap ends. And we're going to pick it up in this future time. Now all of the prophecies, 135 of them, were literally actually fulfilled in the first 35 verses of this chapter. And we saw, among other things, not only were they fulfilled historically, it's all past. Verses 36 and following is all future. But it's a reminder to us how God fulfills prophecy. He fulfills it literally. Every single prophecy for the first coming of Jesus was literally fulfilled. 
God said he'd be born in Bethlehem. Where was he born? In New York? No, Bethlehem. Exactly. Every prophecy literally fulfilled. And so it will be for the second coming. And so those verses are a reminder to us of what God is yet to do. He will literally do. And because as we saw within those verses, there's a foreshadowing of the Antichrist. Now we come to the actual Antichrist that he's going to speak of. And so when you come to verse 36, it's obvious that there's a change here in tenor. And there are six reasons why we know that. In the first 35 verses, he speaks of a series of kings. Remember the king of the north and the king of the south. But when you come to this section, he speaks of the king, a new and coming king at the end of time, who is not a good king. He's a wicked king. He's an evil king. He's the Antichrist. Second, there is a mention here in both verses 35 and then again in verse 40 about the end of time. That serves you notice that he's speaking about eschatological time, a future time at the end of time. And we'll see Daniel 12, 4, which is the postscript to this vision. He will speak again about the end of time, the identical expression used in our passage this morning. And the end of time in Daniel 12, 4 is linked to Daniel 12, 1 that he calls the latter days. And in the latter days and in the end of time, he speaks of a time that is unprecedented in human history. In the 12th chapter, it's called by the prophet Jeremiah, the time of Jacob's trouble. Most of us know it as the great tribulation. But he already gave us a warning of this in the prologue in chapter 10. Let me read 10.14. Now I have come to give you, this angel, an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. So he gives him an immediate prophecy, but then he gives him a prophecy that will deal with the latter days, which Daniel links to the end of time when people will be resurrected to the dead from the dead in the twelfth chapter. Third, the first thirty-five verses have a precise fulfillment in human history. Every single phrase has literally, actually, historically been fulfilled. Which, by the way, is why the liberals hate the first 35 verses. In fact, the only way they can get around it is they don't think of Daniel as the prophet, but Daniel as a historian. Because they start with the presupposition that there's no such thing as the miraculous and the supernatural. They argue that there was not a man, Daniel, in the 6th century A.D. who wrote this, but a man some as late as the 2nd century A.D. who wrote it as history. But we saw the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, not to mention their, uh, their combating what the Lord Jesus taught about Daniel. Jesus didn't call him Daniel the historian, but Daniel the prophet. So there's a perfect historical correspondence because God knows the future. He can tell it in advance. There is no such historical correspondence for the final verses in this chapter. Why? Because they haven't happened yet. Fourth, we know there's a gap of time between these verses because he's referring again to the latter days. And when we come to verse 36, he will include in that an expression known as the indignation. If you look at verse 36, he speaks of a time when the indignation is finished. It's a reference 
to the outpouring of God's wrath. And as we'll see, this phrase is synonymous with the great tribulation period, and it's referring to the latter days. Look at 12.1 for a moment. And there will be a time of distress, such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Does that sound familiar? A time of distress that is unprecedented in human history? course it does. If you know your Bible, Jesus, when he's on the Mount of Olives, is referencing this time, a future time that he connects with his second coming from heaven. Let me read it to you. He said, for then there will be great tribulation. Then when? Then when the event of the abomination of desolation takes place that he just quoted from the prophet Daniel and Daniel in Matthew 24, 15, then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So there's coming a time spoken of by both the Lord Jesus and the prophet Daniel that will be worse than any other time in all of human history. Hasn't happened yet. And the fifth reason we know that this passage jumps ahead to the church age, to the 70th week, is because Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 tells us that this time of great tribulation is followed by a time of evaluation. Many of those, Daniel 12, 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground, describing their bodies, will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. That's identical to Matthew 24, a time of great tribulation, a time of great judgment, followed by an evaluation. And finally, the last three revelations, first in chapter 7, then in chapter 8, then in chapter 9, were each closed by a reference to a coming man of sin that we typically call the Antichrist. So it's fitting in this fourth and final revelation in the prophetic section that he would once again close with a reference to the coming Antichrist. We will learn and have been learning so much about the Antichrist here in the prophet Daniel, and then the book of Revelation will fill in the fine details for us. All right, so now we come to this section. He's going to describe this man's character, his career, and his ultimate condemnation. He begins with his character as he notes the royal pride of the Antichrist, the royal pride of the Antichrist. We read here in verse 36, then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. Now, we are, he's described here as a man of self-will, and his um, self-will is seen in the fact that he does as he pleases. He is the willful king. Now, there are many titles given for this one that we most popularly know as the Antichrist, over 30 titles in the Bible. Some of the most prolific ones are he's called the Little Horn in Daniel 7. In Daniel 8, he's called the king of fierce countenance. That is, he has a face, a fierce-looking face, um, because the face, the countenance, speaks of what's in the heart. In chapter 9, he's already been referenced as the prince who is to come. Many of you know him in 2 Thessalonians 2, where he's given two titles, the man of lawlessness, and he's also called the son of destruction or the son of perdition. He's doomed to destruction. In 1 John 2, 
a title that's used only once in the Bible, but the most popular title, he is called the Antichrist. In Revelation 13, one of the most prolific titles of this man, he's called the Beast. But all of these designations refer to the exact same person. And here in verse 36, this king is described as the one who will do as he pleases, or the willful king. He does whatever he wants. So here is a man who wants his own way, who wants his own will. He is an absolute selfish dictator. He is self-willed, and we will see that he is inspired to do so by Satan himself. But before we rag too hard on the Antichrist, we might pause for a moment and remind ourselves that we too can be a self-willed people. When Adam sinned, the Bible teaches the whole world sinned in and with Adam because it affirms the solidarity of the race. So you can't say, well, it's Adam's fault. No, you sinned in and with Adam. Paul said, therefore, just as through one man, referring to Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. And so now the entire human race is linked to Adam and we have a proclivity to do what is wrong. Paul there in Greece and Athens up on top of the Aracabas, uh, Mars Hill as it's popularly called, he tells us that God has made of one blood all the nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. We may look different here this morning, but we're all related. We're all from one blood. We all have our original parents that we can trace our genealogy back to. You have Adam's sinful blood flowing through your veins this morning. And so we are described in Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's why Jesus could say of lost people in John chapter 8, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. The desires of Satan are only self-centered, and by nature we are this way, and the only thing that will change it will be a birth from above. Jesus said you must be born twice, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And when you are born again, your self-centered tendencies begin to change. That's why at the end of time, all these people who claim they are Christians but did not have a life that changed given through a second birth, he will say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? I will declare to you, I never knew you. And so the first way we will see the royal pride of the Antichrist is through his self-will. This man will not come to do God's will, but his own will. Secondly, we learn in verse 36 that he will exalt himself. He will exalt himself. We read, then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. He is the antithesis, the exact opposite of the Lord Jesus. Of Jesus it said that although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. But the Antichrist, by contrast, will exalt and magnify himself above every god. He is the devil's man, and so he acts just like the devil, like Satan. And his fall is recorded in two passages, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. 14 times 2 is 28. Easy to remember, right? Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. The two passages describing the fall of the evil one. Five times over, he said, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. He wants to be like the most 
high. And so the Antichrist is described in similar fashion. Listen to these words from 2 Thessalonians 2. You may want to turn there or just listen carefully. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed by a spirit or a message or a letter as if it was from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you, for it, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now follow the flow of thought. The Thessalonians had received some kind of letter some word of prophecy, some message to the effect that the day of the Lord had begun and that they thought they had missed the rapture. Now, the term yom in Hebrew and the word day in the New Testament can refer to either a 24-hour day or a period of time. God created the world in six literal 24-hour days, no gaps of time between. How do I know? Because that's how it's described in Genesis, and that's how God comments on it in Exodus 20 when Moses writes the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth, resting on one. And so we follow the exact same pattern. But the day of the Lord can also refer to a period of time. We speak of the day of your youth. We're not talking that you're a youth for one day. And interesting, the day of the Lord, an expression found throughout the Old Testament, is used to describe a very dark time and a very bright time, a very awful time and a very wonderful time. Why? Because it mimics a biblical day. A biblical day starts with sundown, and it goes down through sundown the next day, and so the Jewish Sabbath to this day. I believe we're in the shadows, but when the church is raptured, it's going to get pitch black. But Jesus will come. And it will be bright as can be. He will rule and reign with a rod of iron for a thousand years. But at the end of that thousand years, as we're going to study, it's going to get dark again. So they thought, oh, we're, we're in the day of the Lord. We, we, we missed the rapture. Paul said, no, impossible. Don't listen to these other letters. He will later say, look, unless this letter has this mark on it, it's not from me. He said, you know, for two reasons. Number one, the apostasy hasn't taken place yet. We've always had apostasy, but there is coming the apostasy, and the seeds are being sown for it in our day. A great falling away worldwide, nor has the man of lawlessness been revealed. And so those two events will happen after the rapture. This one, who, verse 4, opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. You may be thinking, how will the Antichrist be able to do that since the temple doesn't exist in our day? Well, let me review with you Daniel 9.27 for a moment. Daniel 9.27 says, and he, the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, that's the nearest antecedent back in verse 26, and he will make a firm covenant with the many, speaking of the Jewish people, if you remember, for one week. It's a week of years for seven years. But in the middle of the week, in the middle of the seven years, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So this is a reference to the coming Antichrist. In plain English, the Antichrist is going to come and make a covenant with the many, with the people of Israel, for seven years. And during this seven-year period, in the middle of the seventh year, he is going to break the covenant. 
Now, if you go to the Jerusalem today, they're on the top of the Temple Mount, 37 acres of property, the most disputed piece of property on the face of the earth. And now beyond dispute, virtually no Orthodox Jews would kick against this. The actual temple did not sit where the Dome of the Rock is, but right next to it, adjacent to it. In either case, I don't know if they'll tear down that dome before the temple's built. The Bible doesn't tell us. But in either case, the temple is going to be rebuilt on top of that temple mount. How will it happen? Well, no doubt the man of peace who comes with all kinds of signs, wonders, and miracles will allow it to happen. All I know is that it needs to be done by the middle of the seven years. And as this next slide shows, in the middle of the 70th week, remember the first 69 weeks have been fulfilled. It brought us till Messiah the Prince, April 6, 32 AD. Now we are in the church age. The 70th week will begin when the church age ends, when the church is raptured. And in the middle of the 70th week, the A of D, the abomination of desolation, which Jesus quotes, in Matthew 24, 15, he relates it to his second coming. The Antichrist will go into that rebuilt temple and claim to be God. That's what Paul just said. Now you go to the Temple Institute in Jerusalem today. They have remanufactured all the priestly garments, the furniture. There's a group of Orthodox Jews who recognize the biblical truth. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness for sin. Now they don't understand yet in their minds that Messiah has come and shed his innocent blood. But they want to reinstitute the animal sacrificial system. And so when the Antichrist says, oh, it comes, you want to build your temple? No problem, that's fine. And in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the grain offering. He will commit what Jesus called the abomination of desolation. He will tear up that treaty. And that doesn't surprise us because the devil is a liar and this is the devil's superman. He is a liar. The devil, whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie. Why? Because he speaks from his own nature. And so when the Jews are sacrificing, at one point, the Antichrist, maybe the very dedication of the temple, he'll say, hold it. If there's anyone you need to worship, it's me. I am the one. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. So he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 24. They're on the top of the Mount of Olives when they're asking him about his second coming. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of not through the historian, but through the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, Satan has always wanted to be like God. That was his sin that made him the devil, the devil. I want to be like the Most High. And so Satan's coming Superman will try to fulfill Satan's dream. There's going to be an unholy trinity during the time of the 70th week. And in the middle of the 70th week, Satan's dream will come to pass. Now, after the church is raptured, again, Israel has three and a half years to rebuild the temple. They could build it, start tomorrow maybe. I doubt it would happen tomorrow. But uh, what I'm saying is it could happen before the rapture of the church. But we know it will be completed and built by the middle of the 70th week because God literally fulfills all of his prophecies. The coming Antichrist will exalt himself above every god. Consequently, he'll oppose every type of worship except the worship of himself. And next time in our ongoing study of Daniel, we'll see more characteristics of the Antichrist, including his boastful and blasphemous nature. To listen again to today's study entitled The Coming Antichrist, 
Use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program DAN18. Tomorrow we continue our profile of the coming Antichrist. Join us then, won't you, as we search the Scriptures.